It was the night of July 4th, 1969. In Lakewood, Ohio, 20,000 people were gathered along the shores of Lake Erie for the annual fireworks display. A few miles away, Shirley Amster anchored her boat offshore to get the best view. But she noticed the water was unusually choppy. Though the radio didn't indicate any incoming severe weather, she decided to watch from the dock rather than out on the water. The move saved her life. Just before 8 p.m., the temperature abruptly dropped 10 degrees and a huge gust of wind blew through the park. Panicked spectators ran for their houses and cars. Within moments, the park was battered by a wall of wind and rain blowing at over 100 miles per hour. By morning, dozens of celebrating Ohioans were dead. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Tim. Every Thursday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. This is our episode on the Ohio Fireworks Derecho. A derecho is a massive, long-lasting storm stretching hundreds of miles that creates straight-line winds. The July 4, 1969 derecho battered northern Ohio, causing historic flooding, property damage, and the death of more than 40 people. In this episode, we'll explore the conditions that created the powerful storm and the tragic circumstances that led to enormous damage and loss of life. Finally, we'll examine the immediate and long-term aftermath of the tragedy for towns across Ohio. We'll dive into the disaster right after this. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. July 4th, 1969. Richard Nixon was six months into his presidency. The first Boeing 747 had recently made its maiden flight and the Apollo moon landing was just two weeks away. In Lakewood, Ohio, it was a typical midsummer morning. Temperatures were over 80 degrees Fahrenheit with 87% humidity. The warm air felt thick and heavy along the shores of Lake Erie as municipal workers prepared Lakewood Park to receive 20,000 visitors that evening. Thousands of trees swayed in the breeze across the park's 31 acres. Lake Erie waves lapped gently against the shore at the park's northern edge. 
Electrical wires snaked across the bandstand, awaiting the night's live music. By noon, Shirley Amster was on the deck of her sailboat anchored just a few miles up the shore from Lakewood. She watched from the water as Cleveland Mayor Carl Stokes officially opened the new Edgewater Beach pool in front of a huge crowd. At 1 p.m., Shirley set sail toward Lakewood. The radio issued small craft thunderstorm warnings throughout the day, so Shirley kept her eye on the water and sky to ensure safety. The weather report indicated isolated thunderstorms brewing to the west. Thunderstorms need three ingredients, warm air, moisture, and instability. On the afternoon of July 4th, the eastern Great Lakes region produced all three of these conditions. The first to appear was a warm front over Michigan. Warm air is less dense than cool air, so it rises. The warmer the air is, the more quickly it rises. When hot air close to the ground rises swiftly upward into higher levels of the atmosphere, it creates what's called an updraft. The warmest sections of the air rise the fastest. Air that is closest to the ground is usually the warmest and thus rising quickly over a greater distance to reach the high atmosphere. These differences in speed and height create instability in the air movement, the second ingredient needed for a thunderstorm to emerge. Finally, the third storm ingredient, moisture. As updrafts rise, the air around them gets cooler and cooler. When the warm air in the updraft reaches those cooler levels of the atmosphere, the water vapor within the air condenses, meaning that the water turns from vapor into droplets. These droplets form clouds. The clouds release heat, and the heat keeps the air warm, continuing to propel it further upward. This is similar to the way a hot air balloon burner heats the air that fills the balloon, lifting it higher and higher. Once the updrafts of warm air rise up from the ground, columns of colder, denser air sink downward to replace them. These are called downdrafts. In the same way that condensation releases heat and keeps the updraft warm, evaporation of water in the cool air keeps it cool as it travels downward. This creates a convection cycle. Hot, moist air moves upwards and cooler, dry air moves downwards. When a convection cycle has enough vertical movement to carry the warm air all the way to the upper troposphere above 25,000 feet, it's called a deep cell. When multiple deep cells merge, they form a large puffy cloud that keeps growing upwards until it hits the stratosphere, somewhere between 25,000 and 60,000 feet. The water droplets within the cloud are blown around by the convective wind currents. As the droplets ricochet off one another, they combine and increase in size until they are so heavy the wind can no longer hold them aloft. This is when rain begins to fall. When the cloud is tall enough to reach the stratosphere, heavy enough with water droplets that rain is falling, and full enough of static electricity to form lightning, a thunderstorm is born. That entire process had happened over Michigan by 6 p.m. on July 4, 1969. Several isolated thunderstorms were now rolling east, bringing rain and thunder over Lake Erie. Usually, isolated thunderstorms run out of energy in less than an hour and dissipate. But on July 4th, multiple thunderstorms arose in close proximity to one another. 
The forceful updrafts and downdrafts from one storm created the air instability and energy needed to fuel a neighboring storm. More and more individual storm cells joined together. It caused a chain reaction. The amount of energy embedded in an isolated thunderstorm from the updrafts, downdrafts, and ricocheting water droplets is staggering. Just one of the multiple storms over Michigan contained an amount of energy equal to the nuclear bomb dropped on Nagasaki in 1945. By the time the storms had slammed into each other over Lake Erie, they had a hundred times as much energy. What had been a collection of isolated thunderstorms was now one massive straight-line storm. It was 60,000 feet tall, equivalent to Mount Everest stacked on top of itself. The huge bank of storm clouds created a wall of wind hundreds of miles wide called a continuous gust front. The wind never lets up in a gust front, and some of the gusts blasted out of the storm with velocities over 100 miles per hour. By 7 p.m., those horizontal gusts were rocketing across Lake Erie, headed straight for the 4th of July celebrations on the shore. As the storm barreled across the lake, still undetected, 16-year-old Greta Schwartz arrived at Lakewood Park with her boyfriend Larry. She had just graduated from Lakewood High School. A majorette in the high school marching band, she was enjoying her last summer at home before leaving for Kent State University in the fall to study teaching. Also arriving at the park was the DeLeish family, parents Anthony and Beatrice, and their five children. They parked their car and found a place to sit on the grass. 14-year-old Dagmar asked to stay near the band shell to participate in the dance contest. Her father agreed. After all, it seemed like a calm, perfect evening where nothing could go wrong. Meanwhile, Shirley Amster was anchored offshore amid more than 1,500 other boats to watch the fireworks. She noticed alarming changes in the water and sky. The wind speed was abruptly rising. Fear rose in her chest. Shirley checked her sailboat's weather radio for any severe warnings, expecting to hear an alert. But there was none. She decided to dock her boat anyway, and cautiously eyed the hundreds of boats that remained on the water. Even when she reached the dock, she still heard no weather warnings over the radio at all. By that point, the National Weather Service was aware of the massive storm barreling toward Ohio. But the office responsible for issuing severe weather warnings was closed for the federal holiday. That left area police departments responsible for warning the public, but they had their hands full and weren't monitoring the weather. Cleveland authorities received the first reports of severe weather at 7.35 p.m., when a ship captain in the middle of Lake Erie reported 110 mile per hour winds headed toward the shore. The spectators at Lakewood Park and those in the 1,500 boats out on the water were blissfully unaware of the 11-mile-high megastorm racing toward them. Just moments later, it would change the town of Lakewood forever. Coming up, the deadly storm pummels Ohio. Now, back to the story. On the evening of July 4, 1969, fireworks lit up the sky in Lakewood, Ohio, as thousands gathered to celebrate America's Independence Day. 
but a windstorm called a derecho, 60,000 feet tall and hundreds of miles wide, was charging southeast across Lake Erie, just moments from making landfall in Lakewood. Nobody knew what was coming until an ominous wall of thick, dark clouds blanketed the sky. A gust of wind blew through the park, and the temperature dropped 10 degrees in a matter of moments. Local radio personality Wayne Mack was master of ceremonies at the Lakewood Park Bandshell. He saw the clouds over the lake and jokingly said, Think dry. The families gathered around the bandshell all laughed. Food and toys littered the ground, all of which could be tossed in a picnic basket or cooler if necessary. A little rain wouldn't stop their fun. A few minutes later, Lakewood Park officials received warning of the severe storm, but chose not to make an announcement over the PA system. They were worried about panicking the spectators. A stampede could be fatal. Unfortunately, they didn't realize the oncoming storm could be, too. John McDonnell and Tom Lamb, two local 13-year-olds, initially ran towards the dark clouds with excitement. Then they heard a sound like a roaring train and were pelted by rain, blown so hard by the wind it was horizontal. One resident described the eerie look of the storm, saying, The sky turned pea green with pink lightning, branch after branch of lightning. Picnic baskets and plates hurtled through the park, and leaves and branches tore off of the trees, catapulting through the air. The two boys panicked and joined nearly 20,000 other spectators running for shelter in houses or cars. The strength of the wind dramatically increased, ripping massive trees out at the roots and plowing them onto the ground. Power lines snapped and toppled, leaving live wires crackling and snaking across the wet ground. Local man Don Kelly took shelter in his home across from the park. Safely indoors, he glanced out at the driveway at his Mercury Marquee sedan, purchased just two weeks previously. Now, his beloved new car was parked underneath a 100-foot-tall oak tree, and the tree was snapping back and forth in the wind like a twig. Don grabbed his keys to move the car, but his wife stopped him. Just moments later, the sound of cracking wood echoed through the park. The tree crushed the front of the car. While trees fell left and right on the shore, boaters on the lake scrambled to reach safety. Some fled toward the shoreline, but 22 boats ran aground in the shallow waters of Edgewater Beach. Other vessels careened into the rocky breakwaters built to protect the beaches. The wind and waves hurled them into the rocks, splintering their hulls and sinking them. Nowhere was safe. One houseboat even headed toward the open water, hoping to push through to the other side of the storm. Pummeled by ten-foot waves, the captain and his ship barely managed to stay afloat. But most weren't so lucky. More than 100 boats overturned, their terrified passengers desperately attempting to swim to shore. Whether they faced the storm on land or water, these Lakewood residents were in the thick of the derecho. The word derecho is Spanish and means direct or straight ahead. Dr. Gustavus Hinrichs, a University of Iowa physicist, coined the term in 1888 in relation to storms. 
It describes the straight-line shape of wind damage caused by the powerful gusts, distinct from the rotary damage caused by tornadoes. To be categorized as a derecho, a storm must have a damage swath of at least 240 miles and wind gusts of at least 58 miles per hour along most of its length. Many of the gusts of wind in Ohio surpassed 100 miles per hour, and gusts of up to 130 miles per hour were recorded. The July 4th derecho contained as much energy as multiple 20 kiloton nuclear explosions and stood as tall as 40 Empire State Buildings stacked end-to-end. 100-mile-per-hour wind gusts formed the front edge of the storm, battering the Lake Erie shore. Gusts of wind and rain pummeled the residents of Lakewood, Ohio in one concentrated blast. Terror filled the town for 10 minutes before the derecho blew past them. Its deadly winds died down and the rain quieted. As suddenly as it arrived, it left. Police and firefighters descended on Lakewood Park to keep the remaining crowd from being electrocuted by downed power lines. They asked departing drivers to take strangers into their cars in an effort to clear the park more quickly. The DeLeish family gathered near their car. Both parents and four of their children were accounted for, but 14-year-old Dagmar was missing. They waited for her to emerge from the park. Hours ticked by, but there was no sign of her. The panicked family tried to search the park, but the police stopped them. The area was still too dangerous. They could be electrocuted by downed wires or injured by falling branches. Reluctantly, the family departed hoping Dagmar had already found another way home. While the dazed Lakewood residents returned home, the storm raged further in Ohio. It was finished with Lakewood, but had only just begun its path of destruction. Over the next four hours, the storm continued southeast across Ohio and western Pennsylvania. It battered the city of Toledo with winds of 104 miles per hour, knocking down 5,000 trees. The storm may have moved quickly through Lakewood, but it hit strong opposing winds in Toledo. As it did, it stopped and wreaked havoc on a lineup of towns that stretched 100 miles to the southeast. In total, the derecho was stationary for nearly eight hours. In that time, it released a deluge of rain on already saturated land unable to absorb it. The rain kept coming all night. Meteorologists consider light rain to be less than one-tenth of an inch per hour. Rainfall over three-tenths of an inch per hour is considered heavy rain. Wayne County, Ohio received almost a full inch per hour between 9 p.m. on July 4th and 7 a.m. on July 5th. The town of Wooster received nearly 15 inches of rain overnight, nearly twice what a city like Phoenix, Arizona receives in a year. Around 2 a.m. on July 5th, the mayor of Wooster awoke to a phone call alerting him to four missing police officers and flooding affecting the south side of the city. The derecho was winding down, but the floodwaters were just beginning to rise. Just an hour later, a local couple was driving with their niece and four children when floodwaters washed away part of Route 58. The raging waters swept the car off the road and carried it away. In an effort to escape, two members of the family drowned. As the driving rain continued, nearby Kilbuck Creek reached its limit. 
At 4 a.m., the Environmental Sciences Services Administration issued warning of a flood that could overflow the creek's banks by as much as eight feet. Just 30 minutes later, the Ashland Creek overflowed. Water cascaded through the downtown, shattering the glass doors of the municipal building and flooding the police department with four feet of water. Next, a train derailed on the Erie-Lackawanna line, damaging a bridge. By 5 a.m., Worcester police officers were out in small boats, evacuating families from flooded homes. During a rescue effort, the boat carrying patrolman Robert Goodrich and Sergeant Paul Nisley capsized. The roiling waters engulfed the men and dragged them down to a watery grave. The derecho quieted by 7 a.m., but the flooding continued. At 8.30 a.m., the Ohio State Highway Patrol learned of a man trapped in his milk truck and shouting for help. By the time they reached him, he had been washed away. Twelve hours of historic rainfall raised creeks and rivers over their banks and pushed dams and reservoirs to the breaking point. For hours, the Ashland Reservoir Dam had been threatening to give way, sending a catastrophic influx of water on an already inundated town. Then, at 10.30 a.m., the overburdened dam reached its limit. Coming up, the Ashland Dam unleashes millions of gallons of water on the town. Now, back to the story. From the evening of July 4th into the morning of July 5th, 1969, a massive storm called a derecho pounded northern Ohio with horrific winds. The storm struck crowds gathered for Independence Day celebrations with no warning. After initially damaging towns along the Lake Erie shore, the storm stalled in north-central Ohio, unleashing an eight-hour deluge of rain that caused massive flooding. At 10.30 a.m. on the 5th, after hours of accumulating torrential rain, the Ashland Reservoir Dam collapsed. 110 million gallons of water cascaded across the landscape below. That much water could fill over 166 Olympic-sized swimming pools. The Huron River, Vermilion River, and Black River also flooded, to levels greater than all prior flooding events. At 20 out of 25 locations where flood discharges were recorded, the flooding was the highest on record. By the morning of July 5th, the derecho was already historic in the scope of its destruction. 250,000 Ohioans awoke without electricity. Hundreds of thousands of people lacked fresh water due to overflowed or contaminated reservoirs. The first step in most of the communities struck by the derecho was to search for missing persons and rescue those who might still be in danger. Along the Lake Erie shore, Shirley Amster, whose quick reaction to the weather changes protected her sailboat and passengers from danger, joined in the efforts to search for more than 100 missing boaters. The Ohio Coast Guard gathered every boat from eight different rescue stations along Lake Erie. They also brought in four Coast Guard cutters, eight helicopters, and at least three search planes to conduct an intensive search across more than 6,000 square miles of water. Downed wires made communication difficult, hampering rescue efforts. On land in Lakewood, Ohio, 20-year-old Tony DeLeche had been out all night desperately searching for his 14-year-old sister, Dagmar. 
The family had waited in the parking lot of Lakewood Park for hours after the storm departed, hoping she might appear. The police eventually told them to go home, suggesting that Dagmar might have fled the park with friends and would meet them there. But when they got home, Dagmar was nowhere to be found. Tony got in the family car and drove in a circuit between the homes of her friends, the police station, and the hospital. He visited the police station three times and the hospital twice. Nothing. Then, in the early hours of July 5th, he heard a radio report that the county coroner's office had the body of an unidentified girl. He drove to the office with dread, hoping not to find her there. Tragically, his hopes were dashed. The body at the coroner's office was indeed his young sister. The perilous wind felled more than a hundred trees in Lakewood Park. One of those trees fell on Dagmar, crushing her. 16-year-old Greta Schwartz, the recent graduate headed for Kent State in the fall, met the same fate as Dagmar. Greta's boyfriend Larry and another classmate tried to save her from the falling tree, but her injuries were fatal. While several victims in Lakewood were confirmed dead in the early hours after the storm, many people were still missing. Over the next two days, search and rescue efforts continued. On July 7th, the Coast Guard completed their search of Lake Erie. They searched 6,100 square miles of water, logging 150 workdays worth of manpower hours in just a 72-hour period. The effort rescued 165 people. Sadly, others weren't so lucky. Several boaters succumbed to the elements. A 20-year-old man and 16-year-old girl on a rubber raft when the storm began were never found. One man drowned when he jumped overboard from his boat after it was struck by lightning. And one Coast Guardsman was electrocuted while erecting an antenna during rescue efforts. Having identified those who tragically died, it was time to mourn. On July 8th, Lakewood held two funerals, one for 14-year-old Dagmar Doleish and one for 16-year-old Greta Schwartz. Dagmar had been a high schooler who loved to dance. Greta had been about to leave for college to become a teacher. Barb Zirk, a classmate of Greta's, said, Going to her funeral was one of the saddest things I've ever attended. While Lakewood mourned the loss of lives taken too soon, other towns also faced the aftermath of the derecho. Ashland, Ohio, hit hard by the immense rains, worked to care for its residents and rebuild. The Red Cross opened a disaster processing center at Ashland High School to help between 1,500 and 2,000 families displaced by the floods. Municipal crews worked round the clock to restore city water service after the broken dam drained. The fracture left the city's entire raw water supply contaminated. Levels were so low that the local fire department had only three minutes of available water should a fire suddenly ignite. Across the state, around 41 people died in the wake of the derecho. At least 25 drowned, eight were killed by falling trees, and six had been electrocuted by fallen wires. Many of those killed were under age 25, including one six-week-old baby and several children under 10. In addition to the tragic loss of life, Ohioans also faced massive damage to property and infrastructure. 
Ashland County alone sustained $12 million in damage, $2 million in damages to county roads and bridges, $2 million in damages to the city, and $8 million in damages to local farmland. Across the state, the flooding and winds damaged 10,000 homes, 292 bridges, and more than 900 roads. The storm destroyed 104 small businesses and uprooted tens of thousands of trees. With all the damage tallied, Ohio sustained between 65 and $100 million in property damage, equivalent to between half a billion and three quarters of a billion dollars today. The scale of the disaster necessitated federal government involvement. In the weeks and months after the derecho, federal agencies stepped in to try to prevent similar consequences in future storms. On July 19, 1969, the U.S. House of Representatives Subcommittee on Flood Control traveled to Worcester, Ohio. In his testimony to the committee, Mayor Paul Tilford said, Next Monday, our astronauts will land on the moon. When our nation can do such a marvelous feat as that, surely we can do something to save such destruction of lives and property. But the mayor's wishful thinking underestimated the power of nature. While the federal government studied the 1969 derecho in an effort to prevent similar future disasters, those efforts did not keep those massive storms at bay. Since 1969, 12 more derechos have torn through Ohio. And as recently as 2019, Wooster experienced massive flooding with washed-out roads, destroyed homes, and dozens of people needing rescue. In more than 50 years since the 1969 storm, little has changed that would prevent another storm. Some physical signs of the 1969 storm remain, reminding local residents of what can happen when a derecho visits. Outside the Justice Center in Worcester, Ohio, hang two plaques commemorating Patrolman Robert Goodrich and Sergeant Paul Nisley, the two local heroes who died trying to rescue local residents from flooding. Lakewood Park contains a bench installed in 2015 to memorialize Greta Schwartz and Dagmar Doleish. The Lakewood High School class of 1972 paid for the bench as a way to remember two young lives abruptly cut short. In addition to physical reminders of the storm are the stories that shaped survivors' lives and that they carry with them to this day. Gary Rice had just graduated high school with Greta Schwartz the summer she was killed. Inspired by her desire to become a teacher, Gary chose to follow that vocation himself. In a 2019 interview, he said, Over the years, hundreds of children with special needs received help from me, inspired partly by my friend and the terrible circumstances surrounding the events of July 4th, 1969. Beyond carrying forward the memories of those taken by the storm, survivors bear the responsibility of trying to prevent future disaster. But derechos prove time and again that they cannot be tamed. In the face of a power beyond man's capacity for control, it seems that the best towns and cities can do is warn people sooner when a derecho is on its way. Cleveland weatherman Dick Goddard, who reported the news the night of the 1969 derecho, noted that today's radar systems are better than they used to be. He said, The warning time for a thunderstorm or tornado used to be one to two minutes. Now it's as much as 12 minutes. 
But even 12 minutes isn't much time to prepare for 100 mile per hour winds or torrential rains dropping millions of gallons of water in a single night. If measures are not taken to find even earlier storm warning systems and to build infrastructure that protects against catastrophic flooding, it's only a matter of time before another derecho claims lives in the Great Lakes. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Natural Disasters for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Annie Levin, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Tim Johnson and Kate Leonard. Kate Leonard.